Romans chapter 8, verse 28. I would call this a promise in hard times. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. I've been thinking about this verse for obvious reasons. Uh, This week, for those who don't know, my wife and I attended an appointment with her oncologist to find out the result of a recent scan that she had done and to say that the result of that scan was disappointing would be an understatement. We were quite shocked in some ways uh, by the doctor's candor but we appreciated it at the same time. Uh, It's not good when a doctor sugarcoats things, tries to tell you something that isn't true but when he tells you directly that the chemotherapy treatment that you've been receiving is not working and we're all out of options. That really hits home. And my wife and I have obviously been talking about this and our conclusion is the same as it's always been in these types of situations. It's in the Lord's hands. That's the truth. We're all in the Lord's hands. And my wife is very much in the Lord's hands at this time and moving forward. Now, in times like this, there are different reactions that you may have, and none of them are necessarily wrong. And people who have been in these kinds of situations will understand what I'm saying. Different thoughts come to your mind. Different emotions come to the surface. But at the end of the day, as a believer... You have to come to the point where you say what Paul said here in Romans 8.28. And we know. There are things that we know. It doesn't say and we feel. Because that's not how I feel. Honestly. And we feel that all things work together for good. It doesn't say that. It says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. There are things that we know, and we don't know them instinctively, we know them scripturally. We know them because of what we know of the scriptures, what God has said in his word. And there's a lot of things that we don't know. We don't know what the future holds. None of us does. That's why the Bible says in Proverbs 27 verse 1, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Never mind next week, next month, next year. It is tomorrow, within a day. They always like to say in the world, a week is a long time in politics. Well, none of us is guaranteed a moment And so we can't boast even about the morrow. We are to live for today. That's what Matthew chapter 6 teaches us. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. 
You don't know what shall be on the morrow. The morrow will take care of the things of itself. We are to be concerned with today. So here's what we know today. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. This is one of the greatest statements, I believe, in the whole of the Bible. And I've heard Christians say many, many times in my lifetime, usually in times of trouble, remember Romans 8.28. And it might trip off your tongue so very easily, just remember Romans 8.28. But it's true. It's true. Romans 8.28 is in the Bible. It's never been expunged from the Scripture. But of course, it's easy to quote words. And it's easy to quote them when it's some other person who's passing through the affliction. That's so easy. When someone else is going through the time of trouble, it's easy to say to them, remember Romans 8 verse 28. But still, it is a wonderful promise that we may claim in a time of trial. But sometimes I think as believers, when the shoe is on the other foot, so to speak, when we ourselves are in a time of affliction or trouble, it's a bit harder for us to accept the truth of the word. But if the message of Romans 8.28 could be burned in bold letters upon the hearts of believers, they would be less anxious, they would be less fretful, they would be less despairing in times of difficulty in the trying circumstances of life. This verse has been likened by some to a rocking chair in which a believer may repose in the knowledge that all will be well in the end. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, called it a divine cordial or a drink of which saints may drink a draught from time to time when they need encouragement and strengthening from the Lord. It is a great word. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And I'll be perfectly candid, this verse and this message is as much for me as it is for you today. It's the Lord's word to each and every one of us. If you're not going through a time of trouble right now, just hold on. Because it'll come. The book of Job says, Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. This life, this earth, is a veil of tears. And sometimes we forget that because we're caught up in the everyday circumstances of life. We're just busy living. We're doing the same things that we always do every day and every week. We're creatures of habit. And that becomes more true, I think, the older we get. Because we become set on our ways. And there's certain things that we always do on certain days and certain times. And as you're living your life, all of a sudden a grenade gets dropped into the middle of proceedings. Everything changes. That happened to us six months ago yesterday. Exactly six months ago. When my wife took very ill and had to have emergency surgery. Everything changed. 
from that day. But God has not changed. And God's word has not changed. And Romans 8.28 has not been expunged from our Bibles. And we can still say, even though it's difficult, and we might have to say it sometimes through gritted teeth, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. So I want us to think about this text today, and I do want it to be a blessing to you. Maybe there's someone here today who needs this word more than most. Maybe there's someone watching online and you need this word far more than I could ever have understood. So I trust that is the case. And that the Lord will bless again His precious word to your heart. I want us to think about three things that are simply on the surface of this text. There is, first of all here, a providence that is special. There is a providence that is special. All things work together for good. But it doesn't begin like that. It begins, and we know that all things work together for good. Now, how do these things work together? They work together because God is overruling everything in His providence. First of all, for His glory. And secondly, for our good. Therefore, there's nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing, that happens by chance. Or by happenstance. Or by what the world calls luck. Or by accident. Now sometimes the Bible will use terminology for our understanding. And for example it talks in the book of Ruth about how her hap was to light on a certain part of the field that belonged to Boaz. We would say, putting that in modern English, she just so happened to be in that part of the field that belonged to Boaz. That's how the world would view it. That's how normal human nature would view this. But that's not the case, really. That was not just a happenstance. It's not that she just so happened to be in that part of the field. God ordered that. God ordered that. She was meant to be there that day to meet Boaz, her future kinsman redeemer. It was all in the purpose of God. God was working things out. You see, the omnipotent hand of God is at work in the world at all times. And we can certainly speak about the certainty of God's providence. Paul was in no doubt about it. He didn't say, I think or I feel. He said, we know. We know. And I have to say, he knew by experience. But he was certainly sure that providence was at work. No doubt in his mind about that. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Now, when you know something to be true, nothing will shake you. You know it. And nobody's going to argue you out of it. And so, for the apostle, this is a settled truth. He had the assurance of it in his heart. And there are many truths in the Bible that you and I can be absolutely certain about. 
There are things that the Bible teaches us that we may know. For example, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And verse 1. Same author. Of course it's the Holy Spirit, but it's the Apostle Paul. And what does he say here? For we know, there it is again, that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, he's talking about his human body, we have a building of God. Obviously the word tabernacle is the same word for tent. You know what a tent is. It's not permanent. You can fold it up, take it down, and take it away. Or you can take it out, unfold it, set it up, and put the tent pegs in. It's something that speaks to us of moving. It's transient. It's not permanent. If our earthly house of this tabernacle, this tent, were dissolved, we have a building of God, not a tent, a building, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That's something we know. We know that there's hope, not only of the life that now is, but of that which is to come. There's something else that we know. In 1 John chapter 3, and in verse number 14, the Scripture says, We know that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. And people often are shocked by this, when a Christian says, I know I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven. Some people will say, well, that's presumptuous. You hope you're going to heaven, but surely you can't know. Well, you can know. And the Apostle John says it here. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. God has put something in our hearts. And we know. You can know that you're saved. You can know that you're saved. Not just hope so. Not just think you're saved. But we can know these things. Why? Because God has promised them in His Word. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's a promise. And we can know that we're saved. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. Shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. John 5.24 We can know these things. God has promised them in His Word. But not only that, His Spirit within our hearts bears witness to that truth. See, there is such a thing as Spirit-given assurance. Where the Lord Himself comes to you and says, Thou art mine. God wants us to make certain that we are His. He also wants us to be sure about this particular truth, that all things are working together for our good. It's a certainty. It's an established fact. But not only can we say in regard to the providence that is special that there's a certainty of it, but we can think about the great circumference of it or the compass of it. Notice what's included here. All things. All things. Not just some things, not just most things, not just many things, but all things. All things means exactly 
not. All things working for our good as believers. You know what that means? There's not a single happening. There's not a circumstance. There's not an event that's not included here. The good, the bad and the ugly. The happy things. The sad things. They're all part of the all things. Now this morning you might have in your mind one particular thing in your life, one circumstance, one incident, one happening. And when you think about that, you'll say to yourself, surely that could never have been for my good. I can't understand how that could be for my good. And yet as we look at the scripture, we discover that God says all things providentially work together for good. Just the other day, the hymn writer and beautiful singer, Ron Hamilton, went to be with the Lord after about 13 years of suffering from dementia. Ron Hamilton wrote some beautiful music, some beautiful hymns. That whole family are a very talented family. His wife Shelley, her mom and dad, the Garlocks. Very talented people, beautiful singers, beautiful musicians. Some years ago, Ron Hamilton discovered he had a problem in one of his eyes. He went to see about it, and as a result of all the tests that were done, a doctor determined that there was a little thing the size of a pinhead, or a little bigger, in his eye that would need to be looked at, and it would probably involve surgery. That surgery ended up being the removal of that eye completely because it was cancerous. And Ron Hamilton testified about that. That was a devastating thing to lose an eye like that. But what was a great negative in his life, God enabled him to use as a great positive He had to wear a patch over his eye and he was in church one Lord's Day and a little boy came up to him and he said what's that patch on your eye? And Ron said to the little boy I'm a pirate. The kid said oh patch the pirate. And he went back to see his mom and when he came back up he said to his mom There's Patch the Parrot. And she was about to give him a spanking. He said, oh, no, 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 don't, no. He said, that that was my fault. I actually said to him that that would be a good thing to call me. I appreciate that. Well, Ron Hamilton took that. And he used that as the basis for children's stories. For a whole series of uh, little things for kids to teach them the gospel. And teach them sound gospel principles. When our children were little, they had the cassette tapes in those days, the Patch the Pirate series, and they used to play them until the tapes were almost worn out. What a blessing that has been to children and to adults, frankly, for decades. So God used something that the world would say is a real negative. Losing your eye, God used that for good. 
And Ron Hamilton was able to see that, was able to express that in his testimony. That that eye was something that God took away in order to give him a ministry he would not otherwise have had. All things work together for good. Now notice they don't work providentially separately. All things work together for good. There are some commentators who have referred this phrase to the field of medicine, where apparently one ingredient could be quite harmful on its own, but if administered to a patient, along with some other things, by the skill of the chemist it could produce a healing mixture. But there's another illustration of this. When I was a boy, I used to, as many of us do when we're little, watch my mother baking cakes. I remember this big ceramic type bowl that she had and she would mix all the ingredients in there. I used to stand beside her because that spoon that mixed all that stuff, it always had something left on it and I could lick that spoon and take all that mixture, the batter, off of there and eat it. But I think about what used to go into that cake. Flour, baking powder, eggs, vanilla essence, uh, I think sugar, and I've probably forgotten something else. But it was just a sponge cake, a vanilla cake. I used to love that. I used to hope that mum was going out to the kitchen to make it, like every time she went into the kitchen. But you think about those ingredients. Can you imagine taking some flour and eating? Uh, no, no. Can you imagine taking the raw eggs? I know some people will, but not me. I don't like raw eggs. Can you imagine taking just a drink of vanilla essence and even a spoonful of sugar? No, no, I don't like that. But mix them all together. Then you put them in the oven and what comes out? Oh, a lovely cake. Sometimes you put jam on it. Sometimes you put fresh cream on it. Oh, amazing. All things worked together for good for that cake. But on their own, on their own, each ingredient wasn't really all that appealing. And you see, sometimes there are circumstances in our lives and we think, well, that on its own, how could that work together for good? Or this on its own, how could that be for good? But bring all of these things together. And all things work together by God's skillful providence that turns out to be good and beneficial and profitable in its result. See, the all things are only good and for good when they work together. We, we might say that about our afflictions. You know, it's, it's hard for us to see afflictions as being positive. It really is. Psalm 119, however, says in verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. So it was a good thing, wasn't it, to be afflicted? Because it resulted in me getting back on track and keeping the Lord's word. Or if you like, in verse 71 of the same chapter, Psalm 119, verse 71, It is good for me 
that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. There are things that we learn in times of trouble and affliction that we would not otherwise learn. And there are some who have written about this from their own experience in sickness, even in times of persecution, in times of bereavement. Those afflictions have worked together for good. You think about what the Apostle said in regard to chastisement in Hebrews chapter 12. You know, we don't look upon chastisement when we're children as anything positive. I certainly didn't. I really didn't like it when mum used to go out the back and take that stick out of the hedge and strip all the leaves off it and use what was left to leather me a little bit for something I'd done wrong. Hebrews 12 Verse 11 says, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Oh, God has an afterward. And we can't see that right now. But one day we will. Afflictions work for our good. Trials work for our good. In James chapter 1, it begins like this. In verses 2 and 3, My brethren, count it all joy. It means to reckon reckon it or count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. It means different kinds of trials. Knowing this, there it is again, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience. It's going to be productive. It's going to be for good. And perhaps sometimes we wonder why various happenings have occurred in our lives. We simply can't understand why certain things should be as they are. But remember, this is part of the all things that are constantly working for your good. Sometimes, no doubt, we feel like Jacob. Remember that time when he was speaking to his sons and he was so distressed. Genesis 42, verse 36. He said, Me have you bereaved of my children. Joseph is not. And Simeon is not. And ye will take Benjamin away. All these things are against me. All these things are against me. But if he had known the truth, when he said Joseph is not, that wasn't true. Because Joseph was in Egypt at that time. And that was about to be made known to him through time. Joseph was still alive. And it came to the point where Jacob said, Joseph is yet alive. I will go and see him before I die. Joseph is not, that wasn't true. Simeon is not, that wasn't true either. Simeon was alive. Oh, he was in Egypt, yes. He was kept there by Joseph. But he wasn't dead. He was alive. And you will take Benjamin away. No, that wasn't going to happen either because when Benjamin got to where Joseph was, notice how he was treated. How Joseph looked after his little brother, giving him five times the amount of stuff that he gave to his other brothers. And what a blessed reunion there was between Joseph and Benjamin. All these things are against me. If Jacob had known the truth, he would never have said that. 
But that's the way we are sometimes. We're just like the old patriarch. We're wrong. All these things, God was secretly working for His good. And so it is with us. You know the all things of this text include the present moment of time as well as the vast reaches of eternity, past and future. All things. It relates itself to the daily concerns of men. Because Paul reminds us that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. It's a great verse. We often quote it in times of distress, and rightly so. But it actually needs to be looked at in the light of its context. Because if you look at this, you'll see that like the cogs in an intricate piece of machinery, all things work together for good to those that are called of God for the simple reason that God's purposes cannot be thwarted. And although we may not see it now, everything one day will be seen to fit into God's perfect plan. All things work together for good. This is the providence that is special. And then we may think of the people who are select. The people who are select, who are they? Well, the text says, to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28 makes it clear that the all things work together for good to them that love God. This is a specific promise for a select people. They love God to them who are called according to his purpose. They're called. They're called. So when we read this verse, and we know that all things work together for good, we don't stop there. There's no period in between there. It is this working of all things for good, something that is exclusive to Christians. All things are not working together for good to those who don't know the Lord. There are people for whom all things are working for good. They are a select people. And they benefit from the providence of God. Paul points out to us here their character. What is their character? What are they known for? They love God. That's it. All things work together for good to them that love God. Do you love God? Do I love God? See, only believers love God. And they love Him supremely. Those who are without Christ, they don't love God. If you go back to verse 7 of Romans chapter 8, it makes it clear there. It says, because the carnal mind, and that's really the natural mind, or the mind as it is by nature. That's each of us as we're born into the world. The carnal or the natural mind is enmity against God. That's a word from which we get the word enemy. We're enemies of God in our minds by wicked works, as it says in another scripture. The carnal mind is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. You see this? All things work together for good to them that love God. Lovers of God. Do you know that love for God is the mark of a true believer? 
This is what sets him apart from the rest. Now, why does he love God? Well, he loves God because God loves him. 1 John 4, verse 19 puts it like this. We love him because he first loved us. I would never have loved the Lord. I would never have sought the Lord if he had not sought me. I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. If you love God, it's because the love of God has been shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Ghost. So we have here a people who are select. I say again, do you have this character? Do you love God? Do you know that loving God supremely is the greatest commandment? Therefore, to not love God supremely is the greatest sin. There were those who came to Jesus. We read about it in Matthew chapter 22. And they came with a question, but it wasn't a question from people who really wanted the answer. See, there are two types of questioner. There are people who ask questions who really want to know the answer. They're dying to know the answer. They want to know. There are others who ask the question to try to catch you out. That happens sometimes. Where there's a question that's asked and it's not asked genuinely, it's to try to catch you out. And I've had both kinds in my life. I love it when people ask questions and they really want the answer from the Lord. But look at Matthew 22. And it says in verse 35, Then one of them, which was a lawyer... Now, let's not be too hard on the lawyers, because this is a different word for lawyer than the word that we normally associate with lawyer. A lawyer today is like an attorney, somebody who's dealing with the, the law of the land. This word lawyer has to do with someone who's studying God's law. He was a scribe. They were students of the law. And he asked him a question. Notice what it says. Tempting him. So you see, the question was not asked genuinely. The question was asked testing the Lord or tempting the Lord, trying to trip the Lord up. And what was the question? Saying, verse 36, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Which is the greatest commandment? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And then the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So everything is included in this. But notice first of all, it's love for God and love for God supremely. Love for God above everything else where he comes first. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. They don't share God with someone else or something else. Oh, what a challenge that is. If you do love God, it will show in your actions and your behavior. Because love always manifests itself in actions. If someone might do someone else a bad deed and they'll say, I thought you loved me. I thought you loved me. That's not showing your love to me. Love is always shown by how it behaves. So if I love God, it's going to show in my everyday life. Now how does God know that we love him? We show him that we love him by our lives and by our behavior. 
Isn't that what Jesus said in John 14? John 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. Again, verse 21 says it. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. Do we show by our behavior that we are lovers of God? Because that's what this text is referring to. Them that love God. That's their character. And then, of course, there's their calling. They are the called according to his purpose. What does that mean? Well, these people have been called by God. As Peter puts it, they've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. They are a people who are select because they've received a special call. Now, whenever the gospel is preached, as I would preach it, as other preachers would preach it, there is a general call that goes out to people to receive Christ. There's a general invitation that goes out. But if you ever hear just the preacher's voice, then you won't be saved. There has to be a hearing of another call. And that's an inward call within your heart. And that's not the preacher speaking to you. That's the Holy Spirit. That's God speaking to you. And that's what this means, this calling. This is an inward thing in the heart. You don't see it, but you'll see the result of it when people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. There is the general call. Before a man is ever saved, he hears that general call. But before he's ever saved, he hears another call in his heart. It's what we call in theology the effectual call of the Spirit. It's that little voice inside your soul speaking to you, showing you that you're a sinner, showing you your need of Christ, showing you you need to be changed by Him. That's what we call the drawing of the Spirit. Jesus said in John 6:44, No man can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him. And I will raise them up at the last day. God's Spirit draws people. By His power, He makes Christ irresistible to them. So that as it is in Psalm 110, verse 3, we can say, Thy people shall be willing in the day of Thy power. That's a work that's done inside a sinner's heart, whereby the Holy Spirit makes him willing to receive the Savior. Up to that point, he was unwilling. He wasn't willing to change. He wasn't willing to put away his sin. But now he is willing. He's been made willing. Have you received that call? That's a call that opens a sinner's heart. We see an example of it in Acts chapter 16. What a beautiful story this is. There's a woman called Lydia. She was a seller of purple. She was selling her wares. In this area, she came from a city called Thyatira, where a church was later started. She did worship God. She was religious. But she wasn't yet saved. And Acts 16:14 tells us, Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us. This is Paul speaking. Whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. How often have you heard preachers say, 
open your heart to the Lord. There's a sense in which you maybe can say this, but I can tell you, unless the Lord opens your heart, you'll not be saved. You don't open your own heart. Whose heart the Lord opened. Why? That she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. God did a work in that woman that day. And she showed that she was saved. Because she then was baptized along with her household. And she began to minister to the Lord's servants. This is the call that I'm talking about. And people might often think, well, I'd like to know that I'm one of the called. How can I know that I'm one of the called? Have you come to the Lord Jesus Christ? Because this is the evidence that you're called. If you come to Christ in repentance and faith, it proves that God has called you. Because no man can come, Jesus said, except the Spirit draw him. If you have truly come to the Lord, the Spirit has brought you. And if you come to Christ, he will not cast you out. That's another thing the devil tells people. Well, you can come to the Lord, but in that have you. He's not going to accept you. That's never happened. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise, that means under no circumstances, cast out. That's John 6, verse 37. That verse has meant a lot to me in my lifetime. Every time I've had these doubts and fears in my mind, maybe you're not saved. You're preaching to other people, they need to be saved. Maybe you're not saved. I go back to that. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. The Lord will not cast me out when I come to him. This is the calling that this verse is referring to. You can be sure and certain of the fact that you're called according to his purpose. You can make your calling and your election sure. You can make sure that you're one of these people who is select. But of course there's a third thing in our text. As well as the providence that's special, all things working together for good. And the people who are select, those that are called, those who love God and are the called according to his purpose, but there's also a purpose that is sovereign, and it's all based on this. See the text, Romans 8, 28? What does it say at the end of the verse? To them who are the called according to his purpose. This is according to God's plan. God has a purpose, God has a plan, which I don't understand. I do not understand why things have to be the way that they are. But I know this, that God does whatever He will, whenever He will. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What doest thou? I often quote this verse, and I do so unapologetically. Ephesians 1 verse 11, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Now you have the all things again. But it's according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. God is at work. And even though we don't understand how he's working, or why he's working in the way that he's working, we know that he is. You and I are believers today, and if we are, we're part of God's sovereign plan for this world. We've been called out of the world. And it hasn't been because of anything in us. 
If God didn't say, oh, I, I see something really good in him, I see a great potential in him, so I'll call him. No. No, that's not true. He might just as well have put his hand on somebody else. And humanly speaking, I might look at them and say, they're more deserving than I am. But that's not how it works. We're called not for any good in us. And not for any other reason outside of God's purpose. Why do you think you're saved and not somebody else? Because he chose to save me. That's what. That's it. That's it. Because he chose to. Now that's humbling, isn't it? I don't, I don't understand how anybody could ever be proud of that. What have we got to be proud of? I would never have sought the Lord if he hadn't sought me. I would never have come to the Lord if he hadn't come to me. I have nothing to be proud of. I have nothing that I did not receive. And I know that all things, all things work together for good to them that love God. Our calling is solely on account of the purpose and plan of our God. And we can also say that all things are according to the purpose. All things. I may look at something and say, well, how could that be part of God's purpose? I don't know, but it is. It is. And I've got to come to the place where I accept that. I've also got to come to the place where I accept that some things I will never understand until I get to heaven. I'd like to know why. The Lord's not going to tell me why. It's better not to ask why, it's better to ask how. How can God be best glorified? How can God do what is best for me? That's up to him. There's a great scripture in John chapter 13. I'm not going to try and expound it today, but basically you have the disciples gathered and Jesus takes on the task of a servant. When you used to go into an eastern home, the first thing they would do when you come in off the dusty street is the servant would come, he would take off your sandals, he would get a basin of water and a towel, and he would wash your feet, and then he would dry off your feet with that towel, taking all the dirt of the street off. That's what the Lord Jesus did here for his disciples. He washed all their feet as the servant. And Peter didn't like that. Peter thought, no, Lord, you're not going to do that for me. I should be washing your feet. And he actually said to Jesus, thou shalt never wash my feet. John 13 and verse 8. Thou shalt never wash my feet. I'm never going to allow you to do that, Lord. You're not a, a servant like that. But then Jesus said, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. And then Peter changed his tune altogether said, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. He didn't need to be cleaned all over his body. He just needed his feet to be cleaned, that which touched the earth. And there's a great spiritual lesson in that for us. But notice the words of verse 7. When Peter asked the question in verse 6, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? And if you looked at the original language, you would see that the word thou and the word my are both highlighted. So the sense of it is, Lord, dost thou wash my feet that's the idea you are going to wash my feet notice what Jesus said to him verse 7 what I do thou knowest not now but thou shalt know hereafter 
Peter, you don't understand right now. You don't know what I'm doing right now. You don't know why I'm doing this right now, but you're going to know hereafter. And that will help all of us in the adversities of life if we can accept that all that takes place here is in God's purpose for us, even if we don't understand it. As the hymn says, someday, sometime we'll understand. When we all get to heaven, that's when we'll understand. Job said, he knoweth the way that I take. Job didn't say, I know the way that he takes. Job said, he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. I mentioned Ron Hamilton earlier. One of the greatest things that happened as a result of him losing that eye to cancer was that he wrote a song in the light of that trial. It's called Rejoice in the Lord. He makes no mistake. He knoweth the end of each path that I take. For when I am tried and purified, I shall come forth as gold. God has a plan and God has a purpose. All things are working together for the accomplishment of that purpose. And the all things therefore must be for our profit, for our eternal good. Do we believe it? Can we accept the truth of it? We can by faith. It's not and we hope, it's not and we think. It is and we know. We have the assurance that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Listen, if you're a child of God today, God has a purpose for you. He's working out that purpose from day to day. There are things in that purpose that you will find difficult, that you will find hard, that will cause you to wonder, that will cause you to be distressed. But it doesn't change the fact that they're part of the all things that are his purpose in bringing about good in the end. Someday, someday, sometime, we'll understand. So in the meantime, let's press on by faith. God loves us. That's the only reason why we love God. Because he loves us. He would never do anything to hurt us. And in the end, he will show us that that is true. So may we accept it by faith. And may the Lord help us to stand upon his word.